0: The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 4. In the New Testament, of course, the remnant consists of a few of Jesus' closest followers in the first instance. These are the very people who didn't get it during his earthly ministry. They were fascinated by him. They loved him. They tried their best to follow him. But when he talked to them about certain things, about how the Son of Man has to suffer and be glorified, they couldn't put the two together. The suffering and the glory simply wouldn't fit together. They couldn't do it. And so what I think happens in Luke's gospel is that Jesus begins begins to recognize this, begins to accept this as a fact. There's a very poignant... which maybe we'll get to at the end of this week or maybe beginning of next week in which Jesus seems to sigh and realize that there's simply no way he can convey this to his disciples, this side of the cross. So he begins to prepare them so that after the crucifixion and resurrection the nickel will drop and they will then remember. And then you have dozens of passages in the New Testament which say just exactly that. After the crucifixion, resurrection. They remembered this and then realized what it was all about. So in this passage, he sends them out with no support, fully aware that they're going to fail. I would say that's putting it kind of strongly. Fully, He, he only says to them this one thing about uh, when you meet resistance, shake the dust uh, of that place off your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, he knows they're going to meet resistance. And I would say, One of the main purposes of this mission is to give the disciples some experience of social rejection so that they will be inoculated to that extent against the social contagion that will take place at the crucifixion. Now, I want to do a little aside. I said I wasn't going to do exegetical things, and I'm just going to do this one little exegetical thing because I... One thing led to another, and I stumbled upon it, and I got interested, and so here it is. Uh, This preaching of the kingdom and experiencing rejection has uh, has effects in two areas, of course. One is it has effects on those to whom the gospel is preached and who do the rejecting. And it has effects on those who preach the gospel and get rejected. And Paul talks about the latter in 1 Corinthians. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on show right at the end, like men condemned to death. We have been exhibited as a spectacle to the whole universe, both angelic and human. Now, in other words, God puts the apostles out there to fail, to be mocked, for in order to to show the world something, that can only be shown under those circumstances. But one could also say, the apostles that that mockery that the apostles experience cannot be completely detached from their vocation as apostles. It's so just like what I said about the prophets, which is their social rejection and their prophetic call, can never be separated or dealt with simplistically. They're not. They don't. They're not socially rejected because their message was. Was one nobody wanted? Uh, part, partly their social, partly their message comes out of the experience of being socially socially rejected. What they have to tell the world can only be told by those who've experienced some of this social rejection. So I think Paul is talking about that as well. Nevertheless, he says we apostles are put on, are are made spectacles. We're mocked in a sense for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Frederick Godet remarks on this passage. He says the apostle is alluding when he says uh, we apostles will uh, will be put on show at the end. Godet says the apostle is alluding to the gladiators who were presented as a spectacle in the games of the amphitheater and whose blood and last agonies formed the joy of a whole population of spectators, end quote. So they're being put on show that way. Uh, Goodspeed translates... Uh, this passage in 1 Corinthians in the following way, quote, God has exhibited us apostles at the very end of the procession, end quote. And then Ralph Earl comments on Goodspeed's translation. He says, quote, This might refer to the triumphant procession at Rome when the emperor or general would have his captives of war led in a long parade to humiliate them and exalt his own prowess. The ones at the end of the procession would be the most despised ones left until last. Uh, So here's some other observations, other people who have commented on this passage from uh, Paul about the apostles being paraded as losers. Finley says, quote, "...one imagines a grand procession on some day of public festival." In its rear march, the criminals on their way to the arena where the populace will be regaled with their suffering, end quote. This is an extended aside. I hope you appreciate this, but I want to come back to Jesus sending the twelve out and see if we can't hear echoes in that of this. Faint echoes, no doubt, but still the same structure. Continuing on in Corinthians, Paul says... "...we are fools for Christ's sake, while you..." He's, he's uh, in an argument with the Corinthians. "...we are fools for Christ's sake, while you are the clever ones in Christ. We are weak while you are strong. You are honored while we are disgraced. To this day we go short of food and drink and clothes. We are beaten up and have no homes. We earn our living by laboring with our hands." When we are cursed, we answer with a blessing. When we are hounded, we endure it passively. When we are insulted, we give a courteous answer. So in many ways, there's a parallel between this and Jesus sending the twelve out. He sends them out with nothing. This is what Paul says here. We have no food, drink, clothes, no place to live, which is exactly the conditions that Jesus imposes on the twelve when he sends them out. And then finally, in this passage in Corinthians, Paul says, We are treated even now as the dregs of the world, the very lowest scum. So the dregs and scum of the world. It turns out that those two words in Greek, dregs and scum, are sacrificial terms. The explanatory note in the New Jerusalem Bible says, quote, The words translated dregs and scum are also used for the unfortunates who were used as expiatory victims in public calamities. quote. The act of getting rid of the dregs and scum is a purifying act socially, and it's the sacrificial act. J.B. Lightfoot speaks of these two terms, translated dregs and scum, and he says the terms were used especially of those condemned criminals of the lowest classes who were sacrificed as expiatory offerings, as scapegoats in effect, because of their degraded life. It was the custom at Athens to reserve certain worthless persons who in case of plague, famine, or other visitations from heaven might be thrown into the sea in the belief that they would cleanse away or wipe away the guilt of the nation, end quote. And this is the Greek idea of the pharmakos. The, the this collection of available victims that could be that could be sacrificed in order to cure uh, to satisfy whatever gods were raging at Athens and so finally the last little exegetical note from um, uh, from Arnt and Gingrich who speak of these two terms as meaning propitiatory offering and they say we should they should be translated simply as scapegoats for the world so Paul is essentially saying according to uh, uh, Arndt and Gingrich, he's simply saying, we are the scapegoats of the world. Now, is this some kind of collective masochism? See, this is what sometimes superficial uh, readers of the New Testament of the Christian tradition see. They see this and they say, this is some kind of masochism. This is crazy, you see. And Christians themselves have sometimes turned it into that. But we have to understand it at another level. And Mark Twain talks about the martyr spirit. He says the martyr spirit is the only spirit that is powerful enough to cure us of this craziness that we're in the midst of, which at the time was lynching. He said we need these mar- this martyr spirit that can come in here and, and, uh, and, and bring us back to our senses because without the, uh, the introduction of the martyr spirit, we'll, we're completely lost. We, we get caught up in these things and we can't, uh, we can't call it back. Well, now, the martyr spirit does witness to the community, and that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. By suffering all these things, we are witnessing to those people who are inflicting the suffering, so very much in the way of of Christ or the martyrdom of Stephen or something like that. On the other hand, the martyr spirit has the victim's epistemological privilege. So the martyr spirit, not necessarily the one who's literally martyred, but the one who suffers social scorn on behalf of the gospel I I said earlier, the the suffering of this social scorn on behalf of the the gospel uh, is accompanied by a moral and epistemological quickening and so it's that moral and epistemological uh, quickening or lucidity that I think is key when Jesus sends these 12 out, he's giving them the experience in a, in a mild way. Nobody's going to be hurt. All they're going to do is shake the dust off their feet. So it's not as though he's putting them in harm's way. He's just giving them a little homeopathic dose of social scorn so that when social scorn starts to build... Up... Now, it's not logical like this, but if you see the structure of it, a little homeopathic dose of social scorn so that when the social scorn begins to build, which is going to lead to Jesus' crucifixion, they will know which side of the, the social equation they're on. You see what I mean? They'll tend not to be caught up totally in it and become part of the scorners. But having experienced the scorn, they might develop a little immunity to the mystifying power of the scorners and therefore be more likely to be the surviving remnant that looks back on the event and sees it for what it really was. You see what I'm trying to say? Okay. So he sends them out. Now we don't hear anything about this. All we know is that he gave them explicit instructions about what to do if you run into opposition. If they 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 in other words, don't let them run you out of town on the rail. Don't let don't let yourself get killed or strung up or uh, you see, anything terrible happen, just leave, because this is a practice run. This is a way of... Now, so we don't hear anything about it, but the next thing we hear, which is a very big story, which is the feeding of the 5,000. It's such a big story, particularly for Luke, but all the Gospels, but particularly for Luke, because Luke is so interested in Eucharistic uh, symbolism, and, and uh, the Eucharist for Luke is the, is the place where Jesus is recognized. You see, Herod wants to see Jesus, but if you want to see Jesus from Luke's point of view, you see him in the breaking of the breath. So Luke is very uh, focused on the Eucharistic uh, venue. So it's, it's understandable that we tend, when we get near the feeding of the 5,000, to be completely lost in it as the centerpiece of everything, which it deserves to be. But if you notice, the the introduction to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 begins this way. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out about it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions. For we are here in a deserted place, a lonely place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about fifty each. They did so, and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. End quote. Well, that's obviously a Eucharistic image here. Very solemn. He took it he took the fish and the And the loaves, he blessed them, uh, looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke them. This is a Eucharistic. This is a Eucharistic story. But it's interesting that it's introduced by saying, on their return. Now, you know, the structure of the Mass is the liturgy of the Word, which is the preaching of the Gospel, the Good News, and then the liturgy of the Eucharist, of the table of the banquet. And here you have the same thing. They've been sent out on this mission to preach the good news and, quote, on their return, the apostles told told Jesus what they had done. He takes them off to the site. There's a huge crowd and then they have a Eucharistic banquet. It says here they told Jesus what they had done. There's no mention of how successful they had been, but no doubt they had shaken enough dust off their feet to have gotten the homeopathic dose of the victim's epistemological privilege. And it was perhaps this homeopathic dose that was the, the essential thing in preserving the remnant's requisite lucidity at the moment when it was necessary, namely after the crucifixion. And then it says, so now we've had the Eucharistic thing. But the Eucharistic event, the feeding of 5,000, is explicitly related to the sending to the mission of the Twelve. At the end it says, all ate and were filled. And I said this last week when we were talking about the the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus says those who are hungry will be filled, and the question is, with what? And, you know, is meat and potatoes, pizza, etc., filled with what we humans long for the most? which is not full stomachs, but a sense of joy and meaning. So I would say they're filled. But this does not mean that there was this... Now, I am not. I don't have anything against uh, great banquets either, but the point is they were filled means something more. Just, just when it says Jesus raised his eyes to heaven, bro- uh, blessed it and broke it, it's clear we're talking about the Eucharist. It says they were filled. We shouldn't automatically think we're talking about a full stomach. They were filled with what we humans most uh, long for. By the way, notice that the feeding of the 5,000 involved the participation of the 12, exactly the 12 who had been out on this mission, the purpose of which, or one of the important purposes of which, in my estimation, was to give them an experience of social rejection, and therefore to prepare them to be a remnant after the crucifixion. These 12, are the ones who distribute the, the uh, Eucharistic meal at the feeding of the family. And then it says, what was left over was gathered up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, what are we to make of that little reference? 12 baskets of broken pieces. Well, as I've talked about before, 12 isn't a very important number. Jesus cho- chose 12 apostles because of the twelve tribes of Israel and so on. It's a it's the number in the Bible. Nevertheless, twelve baskets of broken pieces. What what might Luke, who is a who's a literary genius, be alluding to here? The broken pieces. What are the broken pieces? You know, when the disciples leave on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, they're broken people. Everything is in shambles, you see? It's all it has all fallen apart. It's all in pieces. And they're walking with their heads hung uh, to Emmaus, and they think it's all gone. And Jesus walks beside them. I don't want to interpret that story until we get to it. But he walks beside them, and he puts it back together for them. He gathers up the pieces. When In this passage, when it says that they gathered up the pieces, and there were twelve baskets full, that's a triumphant message. There's a triumphant message in there, which is, can you believe that? There are 12 whole baskets full of just the scraps that people left over. But what does that mean? 12 baskets full of... In other words, the, the resurrection, which is when the nickel drops, so to speak, when, it's, when we're able to understand the first part of the story, happens when all of those pieces... Are scattered and broken and the brokenness is gathered together and the key word of course is gathered together now what is Jesus teaching them he's teaching them that when you have broken pieces what you have to do is gather them gather the broken pieces and you will find out that in the gathering the broken pieces you will discover something you could not have imagined when you were spending all your life trying not to be broken So, after the crucifixion, what must be gathered up is all that went before. That's what Jesus does to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He tells the whole, goes back and picks up all the pieces of the story and weaves them back together again and tells them the resurrection truth. So here it says... Uh, It must be gathered up. And I think the business of gathering up is the business of the remnant. Remembering the the pieces of the story and holding on to them and putting them back together so that then you discover what really took place. Okay. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, now again, for Luke, who refers to Jesus' prayer life more than anybody else, When Jesus prays in Luke, it means something. It means an important turning point. We're at an important turning point, and Jesus is praying because the same reason that you and I pray, because He's at a turning point, and He wants to do it being in obedience to God. Once again, when Jesus was praying alone with only disciples near Him, He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, it's interesting to me. He doesn't ask them this before he sends them out. When he sends them out, they shake the dust off their feet. They experience some mild social rejection. Let me just ask you this. He's asking them, what do the crowds say? And in a minute he's going to say, well, what do you say? So clearly the crowds think one thing and these people, his disciples think or might think another. He's assuming that there's a difference between what the crowds say and what they they say, what the crowds think and what they think. Could he have been as sure of that before he sent them out to experience social rejection? Do you see what I'm saying? If you relate these things, you see that perhaps they work together in this sequence. Perhaps only now can Jesus' disciples perceive a difference between what the crowds say and what they say. This is the birth of individuality. It's that radical. And it's just as radical at the epistemological level as it is at the psychosocial level. So he says to them, what do the crowds say? Now, you could say, I mean, if you really wanted to, you know, bring the music of 2001 up behind this thing, you, you could say, this is really it. This is really it. For, you could say, for the first time in the world, somebody is saying, tune your ear to the crowd and hear what it says and then see what you say. See if there's something else. See if you're outside it enough to have your another thought. Can you have a thought that's not that? And how? why can you have a thought that's not that? There's only one reason, from a Christian perspective, there's only one reason, and that is because you have become a follower of Christ, and He's outside of it. You couldn't do it because of yourself. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read the story here. Once when Jesus was alone praying, okay, He said, who did the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, still others, uh, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen, exactly what Herod said. They're repeating Herod. The crowd and Herod are indistinguishable. The, and if you told Herod that, he wouldn't be able to believe it. Or if you told the crowds that, they wouldn't be able to believe it. Herod's simply on at the apex of the crowd thinking. And the Gospels are perfectly clear about this. In every case, they demonstrate that the, the leaders of the crowd are simply the puppets of the crowd. They're all the same. So they, they speak the same language exactly. That's what the crowds say. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And this is where I would bring up the music of 2001. This is unbelievable. We're, we, don't, we can't recognize it because we, don't, we see it in some kind of simple narrative. We don't recognize the structure of this and what it means anthropologically. It's a radical break. In a way, you could say Jesus is having a little litmus test here. Can they think a thought that's not the crowd's thought? So he first asked them what the crowd. He now, if it had been you, or me, we would have said, "Well, who do you say that I am?" We wouldn't have had. We wouldn't have gotten into the crowd because who cares about the crowd? But you see, that's the structure of the gospel. It starts by saying crowd, so that we can be fully aware, and the apostles and disciples can be fully aware. Yes, we know what the crowd said. We've been around. It's going, what goes around comes around. Our heads filled with it, just like theirs. Da 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 da. Then he says, "Now, what do you say?" break you see it's it's I'm not doing justice to it but I think it's a tremendously important moment it's the birth of individuality real individuality modern individuality is a joke I think modern individuality is is uh, Polonius in in Hamlet you know Polonius says to Laertes to thine own self be true and we, people repeat that as though it's the, the most s- solemn and sincere thing Shakespeare ever wrote. He, he was totally joking. Polonius is, an, is a windbag, you know. To thine own self be true. That's modern individuality. So the question, see, we moderns think, well, the thing is you have to know yourself. You really have to know yourself and know who you are, you know. And then you'll be an individual and the, the gospel is not that way at all. The gospel says, doesn't ask you who you are. Doesn't say, who do you say that you are? Who do you say that you are? No, it doesn't say that. It says, who do you say he is? That's the key to individuality. Because he's the one, not me and not you. He's the one who's outside the conventional group who's the one always outside the conventional group because his expulsion from the conventional group is what makes the conventional group a group. So he's structurally outside. He's the Lamb slain since the foundation of the world. So if we can recognize him, then we're independent of that group, and only then, from a Christian perspective. That's it. So, again, what I'm seeing here is is Jesus preparing these disciples for their supreme task in the salvation of the world which is to be a remnant a remnant that is sufficiently immune to the epistemological mystification that will surround the crucifixion to be able to see it for what it is and to identify with its victim and therefore to change the world he's preparing them for that task Peter recognizes Jesus in answer to Jesus' question, whom do you say that I am Peter says the Messiah, or the Anointed One, the Christ of God. Right answer. Peter doesn't give many right answers in the Gospel. This is the right answer. The only problem is that Peter has his head filled with conventional messianic expectations, just like everybody else. So his, his epistemological liberation is only partially accomplished. He's able to think something more radical and more profound than the crowd. The crowd is still thinking John the Baptist, Elijah, the reincarnation, the prophets, etc. He says the Christ, the Messiah. It's very radical, but he's not quite there. He still has his head filled with conventional messianic expectations. So Jesus takes the opportunity to correct him on precisely that score. Quote, Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone. Why? Well, it's early, for one thing. Another thing is because the, what they would tell wouldn't be the truth because they're still, their heads are still filled with messianic expectations of the conventional sort. He said to them, quote, "...the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. End quote. This is a real shock because that's not part of the Messianic profile, certainly not part of any Messianic profile that Peter knows about, and so it's quite a shock. Peter knows that the Messiah will, will, will be glorified, that the Messiah will come in glory. What he doesn't know is the suffering. He doesn't know the degradation. And he can't possibly put the two together. It's interesting that uh, Luke tells us that the Son of Man, the Luke and Jesus tells us that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected because those are not synonyms. Suffering is is when the crown of thorns goes in, the whips go in, the nails go in. That's suffering. The rejection is what Simone Weil was talking about when she says redemptive affliction always has to have an element of social degradation. So rejection is precisely that. And uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who's an important theologian, picked up on exactly that theme in commenting on this passage in Luke. He says, To suffer and be rejected are not identical. Suffering can be celebrated and admired. It can arouse compassion. I would say parenthetically here, suffering can be admired and arouse compassion, most likely in a world under under biblical influence. In any other world, or when we begin to move away from the biblical moral revolution, suffering does not awaken compassion at all, as a matter of fact. In conventional social situations, suffering invites social contempt. It's precisely the ones who are crippled and uh, afflicted in some way who are the most likely to be the pharmacos-designated victim. So when when Moltmann says, Suffering can be celebrated and admired and arouse compassion. He's talking about something. Already he's talking about uh, 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 situations which have, are within the biblical orbit to some extent, I would say. Nevertheless, he goes on. But to be rejected, so suffering can arouse uh, sympathy of one kind or another. But, Moldman says, to be rejected takes away the dignity from suffering and makes it dishonorable suffering. To suffer and be rejected signifies the cross. To die on the cross means to suffer and to die as one who is an outcast and rejected. If those who follow Jesus are to take up their cross themselves, they are taking on not only suffering and a bitter fate, but the suffering of rejection, end quote. Okay. So Jesus had just said something about the Messianic role, which Peter did, had no idea of. And then he says, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What is is this a non-sequitur? Is it, as some people have said, uh, the the great mistake? This this is Jesus predicting the second coming and ha, 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 it never happened. Um, I think it's more than that. So he says... There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, this is from the pen of the same man who wrote about the stoning of Stephen and the Acts of the Apostles. And here's what he said at the moment when Stephen was about to be stoned to death. Quote, Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at God's right hand. I can see heaven thrown open, he said, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. End quote. So when Jesus says some, will, some standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God, there's one Hubble telescope from which one can see the kingdom of God. And that is the point where, where Jesus was at the crucifixion the point where Stephen was at the stoning of Stephen. Now, does that mean that we all are going to have to go out and be martyred? No. But it means that we must situate our lives in that place in order to see the real world. That's the radical message of Christianity. It means that we take our stand in the place of the outcast, shunned, victim, despised one. And only from there can we really see the world because that's the place where the victim has the epistemological privilege. And from there you can see the kingdom of God. So that's the Hubble telescope for seeing the real kingdom. And only from there can you see it. Which means we not that we have to go be one of those unless we're called to be or we, circumstances call it, but that we view the world from that perspective. And then he said, And I still think we have to factor this in in terms of the remnant. Jesus trying to build up the remnant. He says, Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. He speaks directly to this question. Are you going to be ashamed of me? Now, not ashamed of you when you're out there feeding the 5,000. There weren't that many people ashamed of him then. And when he heals these people except maybe they're a little ashamed if he did it on the Sabbath but there's not a lot of shame generated the shame comes when they start to crucify him and he says he's saying if you're ashamed of me then then the son of man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory what's this this is a warning what's it mean to be ashamed it means to be to fall under the, the mental cloud that the crowd is in We don't want to be seen as not seeing this perfectly clear thing that they see. And we, you know, could millions of people be wrong? Could this massive crowd be wrong? All these people be wrong? All these educated people be wrong? The Roman establishment, the the, uh, Jewish establishment, could they all be wrong? Ashamed to be outside of their thought pattern. And Jesus said, and he's warning them about this. Why? I think it goes back to this question of the remnant. He's preparing them. You say, can you do it? Can you stay outside? Just a few. All he wants is a few. Now I want to turn to the transfiguration story, which is another episode in the preparation of the remnant. So far, Jesus has sent the twelve out to experience this uh, mild form of social rejection. And he's got them to the place where they can actually think a thought that's not the crowd's thought. So he says, what, what do the crowd say? What do you say? And then he begins to fill in the messianic particulars of which they're completely ignorant, which is the Messiah must suffer. And now he goes to the other side of the equation and the select apostles... Peter, James, and John, experienced the transfiguration. And these are the key figures in the survival of the gospel after the death of Jesus. If these disciples are going to be a remnant, which is to say, if they're going to discover the meaning of their life with Jesus after the after the passion, which Jesus now sees loo- looming on the horizon, it will be because... Partly because the grim savagery of the crucifixion will will be in a sense backlit by the transfiguration. The transfiguration is an important part of the story, and it comes right before Jesus heads tor- towards Jerusalem uh, to undergo the, eventually when he gets there to undergo uh, the passion. So I think the dark element in Jesus's anticipation of the passion, which after Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed. After that, we get this other side, which is the the glorious, illuminating revelation of the Son of Man. And it takes both of those things in order for the remnant to... to uh, survive and see the passion resurrection for what it is so anyway this story is introduced also in an interesting way it says now about eight days after these sayings jesus took peter and john and james and went up on the mountain to pray again a very important moment turning point in in the gospel jesus is praying on the mountain He's taken just his select, closest disciples. But it says, about eight days after these sayings. What are the sayings? The sayings are these passion predictions. The sayings are, the Son of Man must suffer. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. If you, want, if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. These are hard sayings. These are radical sayings. You can be sure... We don't get them. You can be sure that Jesus' disciples didn't get them. They're very powerful, troubling, dark, but darkly luminous sayings about the mystery of gospel redemption. Eight days later, they go up the mountain. What does that mean? Now, in Matthew and in in Mark, it's six days later. But for Luke, it's eight days later. If you go back, you say, well, what's Luke talking about? If you go back to... The the infancy narrative, you get the following, quote, After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child. He was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Eight days is the period of time between the, the birth of a child and the child's dedication in the temple and circumcision. So eight days is a period of gestation, you see, before the inauguration in a way takes place. So, the gestation begins with the announcement of the dark aspects of the Passion. And it's, it's culminated in the transfiguration story. So, Jesus goes up to pray. Now, while he was praying, this is also, it was while he was praying that he heard the voice after the baptism, too. Remember that? So, while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. So clearly there's a moment in Jesus' ministry when his... It's especially true in Luke. In Luke, the transfiguration is something, not something happening for Jesus' benefit, but something happening for the benefit of his disciples. So it's clearly they're seeing him in a way they've never seen him before. So you have... It's, again, it's like the nickel dropping. Eight days after these very troubling things, and suddenly they see the glory... Eight days ago, they heard about the suffering, and now they see the glory. And now they're, they're eight days apart. And you could say, you know how sometimes they, you get these cameras, and they're, they're, you get two images when you look through the lens, and if you superimpose them, things are in focus. Uh, so there's something about the suffering and the glory that are now eight days apart. And, uh, and they're, Jesus is trying to bring them together. He's praying. The appearance of his face changed. His clothes were dazzling white, which simply means suddenly they saw him in another way. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. So that's the recognition of the lofty place in the economy of salvation that Jesus occupied. Now, Peter has already said, You're the Messiah. So he's already seen something very profound. But Peter has a way of popping his head out of the social envelope and then immediately falling back into it. So he's already seen it, but now, here's Jesus associated with... Moses represents the Law and Elijah represents the Prophets. In other words, the whole Jewish tradition, the Law and the Prophets, and there's Jesus with the two most prominent figures in the Hebrew tradition. Clearly, he's in very rare company. They appeared in glory And we're speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And the word departure, the Greek word, is the word exodus. They were talking about the exodus that was about to take place. And Jesus was going to accomplish it in Jerusalem. Again, this goes back to to Luke adopting the tradition and then radically breaking from it in that in that amazing gesture, which is uh, which is conservative of the old tradition, but at the same time radically breaks, Moses and Elijah are there, but they're there in a way comparable to the way in which Simeon was there in the narrative, in the infancy narrative. You know, I said when we did the infancy narrative that it's a gospel in miniature. Simeon, when Jesus is taken to the temple, Simeon says, "Praise the nunc dimittis, He says. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, alike, for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Now you can dismiss me, Simeon says, because the Messiah is here. I, Simeon representing the whole Old Testament, can now be dismissed because the Messiah is here. The fulfillment of the promise is here. And there's clearly that same echo in this passage in Luke because the two representatives of the Law and Prophets are talking to Jesus about his exodus, about the new exodus. And Peter is looking on. Peter, James, and John are looking on, Peter being always the key figure. Peter's looking on And Peter is still half-awake. As a matter of fact, Luke even underscores this. Luke says, Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory, the glory of Jesus, and the two men who stood with him. Now this reference to being weighed down with sleep, you know, exegetes say, well, it must have happened late at night or something. But I think we have to read it epistemologically, you see. Weighed down with sleep, is that they just begin? They're like, they're like epistemological amphibians, you know, who just come up out of the out of the the water, and are just sort of flapping their fins, thinking they might someday become feet, something like that. So they're they're weighed down with that kind of a sleep. They can't quite see it you see, because the crucifixion, which will be the the. epistemological emancipation hasn't happened yet. But nevertheless, they managed not to fall asleep, completely asleep, and that's why it is the transfiguration. They're able to glimpse the transfiguration because they were able to resist that gravitational pull back down into the old order, which in the old order simply could not see the suffering and the glory in the same vision. So then it says, Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, you hardly need to add that, especially in this case, but with Peter it's often implied, not knowing what he said. Now, in Luke's version of Peter's recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, you don't have the the what you, what you get elsewhere, which is Peter saying when Jesus says the Son of Man has to suffer, Peter says no 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 no, let's not have that, and Jesus says get behind me Satan, very stern rebuke. You don't have that in Luke, but you have a little version of it here, because in in uh, Mark, when Jesus, when Peter says, "Let's build three tents," or three booths, Mark says he did not know what to say; they were so frightened. So he interprets it that way. Matthew makes no reference at all to Peter's state of mind, <clears throat> and uh, Luke says, "Not knowing what he said, <clears throat> he still doesn't understand what's going on." Obviously. And it says, not knowing what he said. Well, what does he say? What is he saying when he says this? The Feast of Booths was a very prominent feast, Old Testament feast. It was still celebrated in the first century, Very, very significant feast. It was a harvest festival originally and had been turned into a celebration of the Davidic dynasty later on and lost many of its agricultural uh, innuendos. Nevertheless, it was a very important feast. It lasted seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn commemoration and so on. And it was celebrated by building these booths, which were very much like the booths, or they were at least reminiscent of the booths that the ancient Israelites built in the fields during harvest time. So it's, it's a little bit like being, uh, you know, migrant farm workers. You know, you build these little shacks during the during the festival, I mean during the harvest, and then they become... In the in the rosy glow of uh, remembrance, they become uh, the the, sh- the little tokens of the uh, of the of the past experience. So Peter says, "Oh, this is this is wonderful! What's happening? Let's build booths, which is a way of putting the toothpaste back in the tube, in a way. It's a way of saying." Oh, I understand what's happening. This is—I see this. This is the—this is the feast of booths. This is the—what's happening here on this mountain is something that's very traditional. We know about it. Let's just respond to it in the same old way. You see, he's coming to it like that. And Luke says he did not know what he was saying, which just means he's living on the other side of the crucifixion. He can't—he still can't quite see it. Uh, he's He sees but doesn't quite see. Then it says, While he was saying this, a cloud came, came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. And then it says, When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And this takes... This completely undercuts Peter because Peter was recognizing, ah, oh, Jesus is on a par with Moses and Elijah, therefore let's build booths. This is something we know about. And suddenly the voice says, listen to him. It didn't say listen to Moses. It didn't say listen to Elijah. It didn't say build booths. It said listen to him. And at that moment, Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus is there alone. So you have... Moses and Elijah brought in as a connection with the tradition and then dismissed, just as Simeon said he himself was dismissed, and Jesus is standing there alone, the replacement and the fulfillment of that whole tradition. Now, there's a little set piece here, which I think also fits in the story, but I'll be very quick with it. The next day, they came down from the mountain, A great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. I'll summarize this. Uh, His son uh, was seized by a a demon. And he says, the man says, Your disciples tried to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus says, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring me your son. And he cures him, and all were astounded. But this, you remember, chapter 9 began with Jesus giving power and authority over all demons to the 12 he sent out. And now this man comes up to him and says, they tried to cast out the demon and they can't. And Jesus is exasperated. And when he says, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? How much more do I have to put up with? You see? And I think it is, again, this feeling that they simply cannot get it. They simply cannot get it. And Jesus now understands that they can't get it. And they won't be able to get it until the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so he must prepare them for getting it then and and not expect them to get it before then. Everyone was amazed because he cast this demon out. And then it says, He said to His disciples, so the crowd is being amazed, and now He's talking just to His disciples again. And He says to them, Let these words sink into your ears. So this is very emphatic here. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. Now, why did He say that? Probably because they said, Oh, the Son of Man is going to suffer, and these things are probably going to happen in some celestial region, you know, forces from uh, heaven will move and the Son of Man will undergo some kind of cosmic groaning or something. No. Into human hands, you see. This is anthropology. You see what I mean? This is going to be very sloppy. This is not going to be some grand cosmic event. This is going to be a very bloody, sweaty, noisy, grimy, groaning, real human thing. You see, this is right after the transfiguration. He's got to emphasize that. (laughs) And now this. This is the... I told you there's a moment I'm going to rest my case. Here it comes. Quote. But they did not understand this saying. Now, let me ask you. He said the Son of Man will be betrayed into human hands. Well, you could ask for particulars. But it's not, a, it's not a tremendously challenging statement on its face. I mean, it's, it's not unintelligible. There's nothing particularly sophisticated about it. They know who he means when he says son of man. They know what it's betraying in the human hand. They know all the words. They can't get it. It says here, they did not understand this saying. And there you have this question. Why couldn't they understand it? The son of man is the Messiah. It's Jesus' way of talking about himself, which he doesn't use the messianic terms. And he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the crowd. They couldn't put the two together. They did not understand this saying. Its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, why could they not understand it? It's perfectly straightforward. What concealed it from them? You know, Paul says, if the powers of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's the same thing that conceals it. They could not see it. It was that mystifying power that kept them from seeing that. And it goes to the heart of the claim that the gospel is, among other things, an epistemological emancipation. Remember when we were talking about the Garrison demoniac... Jesus goes in and he cures the demoniac and the crowds come out and they see that the demoniac has been cured and they need that guy because he's the the scapegoat, key to their social hygiene. And when they come out, they ask Jesus to leave and they were filled with a great fear because he had restored this character. And I said at the time that this fear shows that they already know too much. That they already realize, not con- quite consciously, but they know enough to know they don't want Jesus around. They know enough to know they don't want that. And here it says the disciples did not understand this. There was something that concealed it from them, and the question is what? And the answer is what Hamerton Kelly calls the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. It's, it, it's sort of like the octopus, you know. It puts out this inky stuff that envelops everybody, and you can't see. You can't see what's happening. And that's what keeps it. Culture is the perpetuation of that that cloudiness. And they couldn't see it. They couldn't put that together. And it says they were afraid to ask him about it. Why were they afraid? I'd say they were afraid for exactly the same reason that the that the Garazines, uh wanted Jesus out, were afraid when they saw what he had done. Because there's, that fear registers a recognition below the conscious level that what's being tampered with is the key to the whole structure. And so they were afraid to ask him. Their budding awareness is an awareness that takes the form of an aversion for that which is coming into awareness. This aversion generally manifests itself in one of two ways either as discomfort at the presence of ideas for which the aversion is felt or as eagerness to fill the mind with distracting ideas whose lurid depiction of the mimetic melodrama can be counted on to preoccupy the mind to the exclusion of the unwanted ideas. And Luke gives us two glimpses of this. Right after it says, They could not understand what Jesus had said to them, although it was perfectly straightforward. Something was concealing it from them, and they were afraid to ask. Right after that, we get the following. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. You see that? Are these two things related? They're perfectly related. This argument about who is the, the greatest is precisely part of the octopus ink that I was talking about this kind of crazy, you know, uh, spell-binding nonsense that that is generated in the social order that that keeps precisely what Jesus is bringing into the world from becoming intelligible. Because this melodrama is so intense and so fascinating. And so they cop to that. And Jesus said... uh, Knows their thoughts and brings a child up and says they must be like little children. Next, it says, Mass John says to Jesus, Master, we saw one someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. You see, the next thing they do is they start talking. The first thing was, who's going to be the greatest? They start to jockey around for mimetic competition with each other and the next question is rivalry with outsiders our group versus their group you see now jesus in just in the story before we found out these these very people can't cast cast out demons anymore this guy came to jesus he said i went to your disciples and they tried and they couldn't and now they're complaining because this other person who's casting out demons in the name of jesus is successful at doing it but he's not part of our group. He's not part of the in-group. Therefore, you see what I mean. In other words, they can't see this thing. So the social, the mimetic sociodrama begins to unfold as a as a kind of way of expelling ideas that they don't want to have. They were afraid to ask, and immediately you get these stories about mem- mimetic intrigue which are, can be counted on to obscure the knowledge of things we don't want to know. The ministry in Galilee is over. The journey to Jerusalem has begun. Jesus, aware of the suffering and death that await him in Jerusalem, must move toward it with disciples who remain largely ignorant of what is about to happen and who may not understand it when it does. And... What he's doing in the meantime is preparing them to be the remnant that will awaken after the resurrection and realize in retrospect what preceded it. And I think you can detect in the gospel Jesus' acceptance of his disciples' epistemological handicap. They simply couldn't get it. And then at least the Lucan Jesus seems to understand that that's the condition that prevails until the crucifixion undermines the system that gave birth to that particular epistemological handicap. And only then will it be possible for those who have been exposed to Jesus and his message to appreciate what it all meant. And so what excites me really is to realize that when the gospel says they didn't understand it, something kept them from understanding it, they were afraid to ask, it's talking about a real epistemological situation. And we can't sense that so much because we're living on the other side of it, even though we're still handicapped by it to a large extent. Nevertheless, we're freed enough of it so that we don't quite see what it meant we look around we say how could the germans have done that something came over them and we don't we don't realize that that before it has such horrendous moral uh, ramifications and, and physical manifestations before it has that it has mental ramifications it has intellectual ramifications it has epistemological ramifications that same system you see when it's in four-wheel drive and it's taking train loads of juice to the to the gas ovens and we recognize it for its horror but when it's in neutral gear it keeps it it, it blocks us from seeing a lot of things it's benign seems benign enough but if you're if that's all there is you, there's a whole lot of the world you can't see and it was, it's precisely the world that stephen saw when he got to the still point in the turning world and was able to see the Son of man sitting at the right hand of the father in glory. Last week I talked a little bit about the about suffering and glory and about the the uh, about redemptive suffering in the in the christian uh, understanding of things and I didn't want to be accused of romanticizing suffering which of course I, well, we can't do. I tried to emphasize that when suffering happens in other people we ought to go out and try to try to uh, uh, alleviate it uh, or, and or help others understand its redemptive potential but I didn't mean to imply that Uh, suffering is either automatically or naturally redemptive. Uh, I don't think it is. I think it is only uh, redemptive in terms of the Christian understanding of things. Uh, When Jesus talks about the redemptive suffering, very often he will say, when you suffer for my sake, you see, or for the sake of the gospel, if you lose your life for the sake of the gospel, uh, then it becomes redemptive suffering, suffering in and of itself. Uh, can in fact be meaningless and so to tra- to to uh, transform the suffering of our lives from meaningless suffering into meaningful suffering that is uh, redemptive that would be a great uh, that would be a great breakthrough and that's what Christianity invites us to do i said last week and i want to mention it again this morning i feel as though uh, there's in luke's gospel jesus becomes aware of the fact that his disciples are suffering from an epistemological handicap that uh, they cannot overcome uh, except for the cross. Now, uh, but, but I think you, reading Luke's gospel one's, one's led, I think, to, to that conclusion, or certainly I was. Uh, so Jesus begins to prepare the remnant, that is to say, prepare his disciples for getting it after the crucifixion because they're unable to get it before the crucifixion. He says, the Son of Man must suffer and die, and two minutes later, they've forgotten it. They, it doesn't compute. So they, there's an epistemological handicap that keeps them from realizing that, uh, which, will be, which will be broken by the cross. And it's a little bit like the old joke, you know, the, uh, that, that uh, t- knowing that you're going to be hanged in the morning clarifies the mind. Uh, it, there's something about that. There's something about moving either oneself or in terms of one's sympathies into that place of the victim, which is an epistemological breakthrough. This is the, this is what, you know, Andrew McKenna calls the the victim's epistemological privilege. And last week I mentioned Stephen. Uh, Jesus says the, the disciples can't get it. He says, uh, some of you will not see death before you see the Son of Man in glory. And some people say, well, it's a it's a uh, second coming prediction never came true. But the same from the same pen, in the Acts of the Apostles, you get the story of Stephen. And when he stepped into the middle of that 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 uh, crowd of persecutors, it was then he saw uh, Jesus saw saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, so there's that there's that clearing, and that that's an epistemological clearing that either happens to the victim or to those who have identified with the victim. And I think if we begin to reckon with those many passages in the New Testament which allude to an epistemological breakthrough, we'll approach the New Testament in an entirely different way. And I was thinking about these things and I thought about what Paul says in chapter 8 of Romans, which is the following. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or, or the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." Quote. Well, this is the kind of thing we've heard from the pulpit or read over the years. But we have to understand this is an unbelievable breakthrough. You see, in the ancient world, in terms of ancient religion, those things precisely did separate us from God because they were an indication that the separation was already complete. You see, in the ancient world, to, to, be, to suffer, to be afflicted, was a, was a clear sign that you were out of favor with God. And you understood that. Your community understood that. So you suffered not only whatever the suffering was, but the social ostracism, that attached to it because it was an indication that you were out of touch with God. Paul is not talking in a vacuum. He's talking about... He's saying to that to people that are accommodated to that world, he's saying, that's not true. There's no amount of suffering. There's no affliction. There's none of these markers that have heretofore m- meant that we were outside and in disfavor. None of those markers can k- can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Beca- in Christ Jesus, that is to say... Because we saw the Lord of glory get crucified and cursed by all of that and and we know, and that's what the resurrection is, that he was vindicated by the God that he is teaching us to know. This is a tremendous breakthrough. It means all those spooks that we spend our lives trying to avoid, are they're, they're simply that, spooks. Now, when the suffering is difficult we don't want nobody wants it's not masochism we don't want to go experience that suffering but we don't have to worry about it being ultimate it it has been not only has its its religious uh, feature been erased but it has been overturned it has been turned around turned upside down now the one who's in that position if he or she is suffering for the sake of the gospel or for my sake as Jesus said then that suffering has, uh, redempt, is redemptive in ways that you and I can't even imagine. Well, I was thinking about that, and I was also reading a marvelous thing that James Allison uh, has written, commentary on the uh, man born blind in John 9, and I'm going to come back to this later very briefly, but there was there's a wonderful thing he says in there, and he's talking about, you may may remember that we're supposed to be talking about Luke, but this is very quick. Uh, you may remember in there that man born blind he, everybody thought he was a sinner, so the Pharisees say to jesus uh, it, where who whose who sin is it his sin or his parents sin automatic if he 's blind born blind obviously there 's a sin he 's outside H- whose sin is it his or his parents and and jesus says uh, he 's blind so that the, so that the uh, the gospel can be revealed essentially it 's what he said well there the 's a whole controversy that begins to develop. and Jesus cures this man 's blindness. And then the Pharisees are divided. Some of them say, Jesus has done this on the Sabbath and therefore he's an evil person. And some of them say, how could an evil person do this? So the Pharisees are at odds with each other and the only way they can can resolve their own internal conflict is at the expense of the blind man. So they all gang up on the blind man to show that he's really the problem and it's their way of resolving it. And so they begin to do this, but as they do it, in a sense, as the circle of persecutors gathers around this hapless, hopeless, helpless figure, blind from birth, has always been outside the pale, uneducated, doesn't, doesn't know the law in any serious way, you see, is really outside of everything. As they gather around him, he slowly awakens. And this is a tremendous picture of the epistemological breakthrough that happens in that situation. He didn't go to Harvard. He didn't, go, he didn't go to synagogue. He just got himself in that position, and suddenly he's teaching them. It's really an extraordinary thing. So uh, he begins to, to lecture them as though he understands the law better than they do, which is true because he's in that position. And here's what uh, James Allison says in his paper on this. He says, quote, While they are building up to an ever more rabid unity, in their midst the one who is about to be their victim on whom they will discharge their wrath, is becoming ever more lucid, giving weighty theological arguments, more fitting for a doctor than for a beggar. The eye of the hurricane is a center of peace and revelation, while the expelling rage builds to fever pitch." Isn't that marvelous? And this is what I want to start focusing on, the epistemological revolution that that move into the center which, which Jesus brings about in the Passion story, it breaks the grip of the old, the, the intellectual grip, I mean it's more than intellectual, it's epistemological, it's ontological, it breaks the grip of the old mystique. That's one way in which we can understand suffering as redemptive in a, in a quite literal way, you see. It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a vast Uh, and mysterious version of that little quip about uh, uh, knowing you're going to be hanged tomorrow clarifies the mind.